Out of North Dakota and the Army's big decision to block a controversial route for the Dakota pipeline. Corps of Engineers have denied a permit. It's a beautiful day. Oh. On December 4th, 2016, thousands of veterans descended upon the Chetty Chacoan camp. The Army Corps of Engineers, in a statement made by Joe Ellen Darcy, said there was a need to explore alternative routes and that this would be best accomplished through an environmental impact statement with full public input and analysis. Then, Donald Trump took office, and it became business as usual in America. I'm Corey Feener, and this is Underreported. And Chairman Archambault is coming. Where is he at? I just want to um, start off by just thanking everybody for your commitment and your passion. There's a lot of things that people say and it's never confirmed, and I never believe anything until I hear it myself. Uh, today, the Department of Army contacted me and said the Corps of Engineers is going to deny the easement. <laughs> These are things that we've been asking for uh, from the beginning, and it's uh, it's symbolic. To, to, today is a, a moment in time that uh, we'll all remember. And it's our opportunity now not to forget those wrongs, but to forgive. Tomorrow we will be having a ceremony, an international peace ceremony. We are making peace with the United States military. Forgive the assassination of Sitting Bull and the assassination of Crazy Horse. But we will never forget. And we will ensure that our grandchildren know that they lived and died for Ocheti Shakoi. Walking around camp, near the sacred fire, I felt the mood change in the air, as if the entire camp exhaled after months of holding their breath. The response from the indigenous community, however, pointed at a deeper narrative, yet to be discussed amidst the sensationalist violence perpetuated by the Morton County Sheriff's Department. And they said, what if it comes to bloodshed? I said, I'm gonna stand there, and if they wanna shoot and kill me, let them. <laughs> It'll be so, did you hear they announced it? Yes, yes. That's awesome, brother. Awesome. That easement in this land is in trust. This is reservation land. And they had to deny them because if not, it would have been a violation of the United States Constitution and our treaties. And no one wants to deny the world when the world is watching. Cautiously, uh, cautiously, what did they say? Optimistic. Cautiously optimistic about it. Just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, I've got the new president coming in and things like that, so. Yeah. What's your name? My name is Buck Scouts Enemy. I'm uh, from Cheyenne River Reservation. Butts up to uh, Standing Rock. Yeah. Tony Tobacco from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, home of the uh, Oglala Lakota. It, it's overwhelming. 
to, to hear the news. And, uh, you know, as a scientist, I can't wait to attack their environmental impact statement. Army Corps has a history of having crappy environmental impact statements with no regard to tribal input. Uh, they totally disregard the Executive Order 13175, which is the Tribal Consultation Order. There is almost no collaboration, and there is no um, respect given to the uh, order to consult with tribes early on in the process. So we come to, come to issues like this, come to um, the tribes being consulted right before they're ready to put the shovel in the ground. So I'm really looking forward to engaging with them. Um, my name is Stephanie Bickrow. I'm Oglala Lakota from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. I currently live and reside in Phoenix, Arizona with my family. Uh, today's news brought about uh, several mixed emotions, not only because historically, as Indigenous peoples, there's not been a time in history where... Uh, the white man has kept their word. So I'm still somewhat skeptical, and I hate to take that perspective, um, but I'm just trying to be mindful of the situation and to ensure that moving forward, um, each of us collectively as a whole, you know, continue to look at that spiritual unity and allow that to drive us forward. One of the things that really hit home for me today was when um, one of our elders had said, you know, as the Ocheti Shako, we, we, you know, we forgive, you know, this country of it, of the inhumane actions and against indigenous people, you know, and more so the deaths of our of our great ancestors, Chief Sittingville and Crazy Horse, and um, they said, we, you know, we forgive you, and to me, I think that initiated a lot of healing, you know with many of us who still, you know, feel the pain of our ancestors deep, deeply rooted inside of us. And, but they said, you know, we, we may forgive, but we won't forget. And I think that's where we're at today, is that many of us have taken that higher road, you know, to forgive, because we do understand that we're all humans, you know, that we all must, you know, coexist here together and find a good way, you know, in respect of Mother Earth and all of our you know, nations, the fin nation, the wing nation, the plant nation, the four-legged and the two-legged, you know, that all of us are here to live a good life. And it was, a, it was definitely um, inspiring to hear, you know, one of my unchis say that today. And so I hope a lot of our youth can find healing as well and to know that our youth is are the ones who started this movement, you know. That makes me very proud of them and just gives me hope. Hi, I'm Jade Begay. I'm the producer for Indigenous Rising and media coordinator for the Indigenous Environmental Network. When I when I started getting texts and calls about the easement not being granted, um, and when I got to camp already on Media Hill, all I was hearing was the the easement was denied, uh, the pipeline was denied, and immediately I started making calls with press and sharing this this um, clarification on the language, and that language is actually really important. Um, it was not granted. Um, the easement was never denied. If it was denied, we'd be in a much different situation. That means it would be the the project would be 
essentially stopped altogether. This uh, news of the Army Corps not granting the easement was a moment for us to just take a breath and come together to strategize for the for the long term and what that long term meant and what this this new news meant. But you know, I was I was really concerned. I, you know, more than I was able to celebrate, I was I was concerned because I knew this news wasn't it wasn't the pipeline being stopped. It was it was a temporary halt. It was the Obama administration passing it on to the new administration. And we knew at that point in time who the new administration would be. So at that point in time, we were seeing the veterans coming. You know, that was the one of the moments where there were the most people there, media, mainstream media. We, we finally broke through the barrier of, of mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, they all had trucks on the ground. But it but still the the pipeline was not stopped. It was not rejected. I was definitely concerned about the language and then also definitely concerned about how that language would impact the momentum of the movement. And then sure enough, a week or so later, all the media was gone. It was it was crazy. It was you know, people started to pack up and leave. After that news hit, the movement definitely lost momentum and lost its focus in a way. Um, and I think that was because there was not only um, this mixed message of, you know, that, the, that it was over, that we won, that wasn't the case. And I think there was also mixed messages coming from the tribe. You know, on the same day the easement was not granted, the, the chairman had said, you know, it's time for us to go back home. It's wonderful that, you know, we don't have to stand and uh, endure this, this hard winter. It's an opportunity now for us to take all the lessons that we learned from today from the from this movement take them home and know that we can start healing and we can we can spend this winter with our families and i know a lot of people took that as it's time for you to go home and not come back and i think people took that really hard um especially on you know the day that we got this really good news it was good news but I think everyone was really like shocked to hear that people need to go home now. And so that, that confused people. I don't think it was chairman's intention to come off as ungrateful or anything like that. I think he, he was, you know, trying to get this, this point across that, yeah, this is a time for us to break and to be with our families. It was the holiday season. So I think that was more of the message. I just saw at that time, a lot of, a lot of confusion and mixed messages and, for me, reporting was really trying to talk to every outlet I could about how this was not a denial. It was a it was them not granting and then passing it to the next administration. I think the mainstream media took off with a a different message, and um, then we saw just the you know the energy kind of begin to uh, simmer down. Horses scream across the open plain Gunfire crackles, thunder clouds the air 
fighting for the right to roam the land. The president was glad to see that the Army Corps of Engineers announced last night the final easement for the Dakota Access Pipeline. With this final federal authorization completed, the president uh, and the president working to reduce further unnecessary delays, this infrastructure project can finally continue to move As you know, I approved two pipelines that were stuck in limbo forever. Uh, I don't even think it was controversial. You know, I approved them. I haven't even heard. I haven't had one call from anybody saying, oh, that was a terrible thing you did. On February 9th, Dakota Access began construction on the pipeline again, preparing to drill under Lake Oahe. The commentary coming out of the White House has raised a lot of concern, specifically in regards to the president receiving no calls. In fact, since he took office, the White House comment line has been down. Thank you for calling the White House comment line. Thank you for calling the White House comment line. The comment line is currently closed, but your comment is important to the president and we urge you to send us a comment online at www.whitehouse.gov forward slash contact or send a message through Facebook Messenger. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Goodbye. The comment line was reopened on February 16th. Hi everyone, I'm uh, Jade Begay and I'm back live um, to introduce uh, and to tell you what's going on here. I'm in DC at Lafayette Square and we are having a rally to send a message to Donald Trump in the White House that we are here, that we exist and we are going to rise and we are going to resist his plans, his agenda to advance the Keystone XL pipeline and Dakota Access pipeline. The day that he he signed the memorandum to approve Dakota Access and Keystone pipeline, we organized and mobilized and, you know, the, the news was released around 10 a.m. Eastern time and by 5 p.m., we we had organized a, a rally in front of the White House. We were right there. Yeah, the the president saying that he's he hasn't heard any any feedback on the Dakota Access Pipeline. That I mean, I think that just falls into his whole um, the whole like alternative facts uh, issue we're seeing. Yeah, for him to just ignore all of this, you know, it's it's that. It goes back to that same idea of erasure, but he's doing it to to everyone now, <laughs> and so now everyone kind of can have a, a just a taste of of what you know we've been going through. Indigenous peoples have been going through for you know ever since colonizers came came here. This idea of erasure of our of our existence being completely ignored and shut out of the general awareness. I don't mean it to come off as now you guys know how we feel. Um, you know, it's it's definitely a pattern we're we're used to and you know, it's but even with the Obama administration, for a long time there we were being ignored. Now this did a interview with President Obama. We're monitoring this closely. And um, you know, I think as a general rule, uh, my view is that there is a way for us to accommodate sacred lands of Native Americans. Uh, and you know, I think that right now the Army Corps is examining whether there are ways to reroute uh, uh, this pipeline so in a way. Right. So, so we're, we're, we're going to let it 
play out uh, for uh, several more weeks and, and determine whether or not this can be resolved um, in a way that I think uh, uh, is properly attentive to the traditions of the First Americans. It's just like, really? You don't see what's going on? Are you really just ignoring us right now? And I think that's sort of on the same level of of what we're hearing from Trump um, when he says he hasn't heard anything, um, hasn't received any calls about this. Of course he has. It's just a complete denial of the truth. The truth. Certainly a hard thing to come by in a new world speckled with alternative facts. However, this particular truth has been buried over years and generations manipulated with an anti-native national outlook. We'll get to more of that, but right now, the No Dapple story starts with the treaties of Fort Laramie. My name's uh, Harold Frazier. I'm uh, chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Our reservation is located in north central South Dakota. It was in 1851, the federal United States government signed a treaty, and it's called the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851. And it was basically a territorial treaty with different tribes. And the Sioux Nation, our northern boundary, was uh, from the Heart River. And our eastern boundary is the east bank of the Missouri River. And then in 1868, the United States government signed another Fort Laramie Treaty. They always say it was a peace treaty. In the treaty, there's language that land from the Heart River, and then in 1868, our northern boundary was dropped down to the Cannonball River. And in the 60, 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, that land in between the Heart and Cannonball River was called unceded Indian Territory. And as far as I know, we've never ceded any land, because in that 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, it said, the only way there could be cession of land is there must be three-fourths adult male signatures. And that has never happened. So our people have always maintained that that land belongs to us. In 1944, the United States Congress passed the Flood Control Act. This authorized various Corps of Engineers water development projects. I spoke with independent journalist Jenny Monet, who had more to say on this important piece of history. My name is Jenny Monet. I am an independent journalist and a citizen of the Pueblo of Laguna in New Mexico, which is uh, an indigenous nation in New Mexico. I've been embedded here at Standing Rock since December and have been covering the movement at Standing Rock since early September. Well, I think that any time that anyone wants to examine land debates and issues in Indian country, it really requires a lesson in mid-18th century Indian country politics at the time. To understand that will take you to present day, and it's, it's just the equation of how things are in Indian country. Now, some argue that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineer maintained land is quote-unquote taken land, and what that taken land means are lands that were uh, assumed, managed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers during the 1940s, throughout the 1960s, of the Pick Sloan Dam projects. And if you know anything about Standing Rock and their history, is that the Oahe Dam, 
which is centered around the Standing Rock movement, is the source of much hardship for the Standing Rock Sioux, but also all of the river tribes up and down from the Mandan, Haratsa, and Arikara to the Cheyenne River and down the downstream because those dam projects, what they did was rob the Sioux, the Lakota Sioux of their most, and the Mandan, Haratsa, and Arikara, all the river tribes of their most fertile bottomlands. And it spiraled these tribes into a history of cyclical poverty because they no longer were subsistent, because their timberlands were flooded out, and because they were forced, uh, you know, displaced. And a lot of that land, those easements to the, to the dam went to the Army Corps, and there was some compensation over the many years. It took some doing, but there was some compensation. Some argue that they've never been fully compensated in the tribe, and some still maintain that the Army Corps has no right to some of these lands because it's quote-unquote taken land from contracts that have been disputed. And that land, taken land, uh, the federal government gave the, I don't know if it's the ownership, but definitely the stewardship of uh, certain land along that the river. And that is where the Ochechi Chakoi camp is set up in treaty lands that is managed by the Corps of Engineers. This fall, the United States Army Corps of Engineers uh, gave a, a letter to Morton County of North Dakota to uh, have a criminal jurisdiction. That is why Morton County has been uh, arresting our people, and mainly for trespassing, which is totally unbelievable. The conversation about land and ownership continues to happen. What, what is your name again? What is your name again? My name is Justin Wendland. I'm with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Okay. Uh, is the is the tribe also is the tribe also supposed to be here when you're you're doing this? Uh, no, sir. We're doing this at the request of the tribe. Oh, at the request of the tribe. The chairman. The, the tribal council has requested the Bureau of Indian Affairs to hand out these tra- trespass notice violations. What is this? conflict with the BIA and I I think what creates the problem is that there's not any communication or there's a lack of communication between um, these different entities. From what I know there's not any direct communication between you know these different groups. How they're going to take care of these issues of of you know being on the those those pieces of land and then there's just this barrier and people start to not trust one another and I think that's where you see the divide and conquer uh, strategy play out and yeah it just really affects you know our morale our ability to be strong together and it really it really hurts the unification of of the movement it creates a lot of confusion and distrust. It's not a easy narrative to just unpack in one story or one source, and in this case, over LaDonna's land. And one could say the tribe's land, and one could also say the Corps' land, and how that all came to be is really um, taking a deep dive into the history of, of just kind of Unfortunately, you know, the 
the history and the politics of tribes. And um, in this case, it gets to the heart of what was known as the creation of reservation system with the Dawes Act. Uh, the Dawes Act was not meant to be a hereditary passed down allotment of lands. It was meant to be something that wasn't so secure for Native people because when it was created in the 1880s, it was not meant for these land holdings to stay in families. It was meant to whittle away and whittle away as families grew and as they div- divided up parcels upon parcels with, with certain uh, offspring and generations. And the community of Cannibal is very broken up over what's taking place in their small, very tight-knit community. What you have right now is a mere takeover of unleased tribal lands by a group of individuals who are not tribal members, who have come here in the sake of protecting the water in the Munibachoni movement, and have been asked to go and have refused. And that's the situation that's on the ground right now. And a resolution was passed in the Cannibal District. It's a controversial resolution because it happened in an executive session. Some people argue that not enough people were present to uh, parlay a valid vote. But that vote went on to the Tribal Council. And the Tribal Council voted unanimously on January 20th to call on all of the camps to, to leave. And this was prior to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers eviction notice that's coming up on Wednesday. This is something that the tribe itself, all of the districts, uh, voted and had just said, enough now. We're, you know, we're going to fight this fight in the courts. And, you know, I think, I think our guests have worn out their welcome and we, we appreciate them, but it's time to go. And that just hasn't happened. You've had some some strong and passionate people who feel like as long as that pipeline is still being drilled, that they need to be there. And then there are others that are now encamped uh, on those contested lands on the edge of the Cannibal District who firmly believe that they are entitled to be there no matter what. And it's really startling to me to see what otherwise are visitors now firmly planting their feet on the ground when you have actual residents saying, could you please go? And now we're no longer saying please. I didn't, you know, it's, I haven't seen any of that, right? Like I, I, I haven't seen that reported anywhere. I haven't, you know, and it's hard, right? Because trying to disseminate between what's fact and what's fiction and, and a lot of what happened at Standing Rock was a constant trying to disseminate, you know, what is a rumor and, and what is reality. The group of people that are, are not leaving are these other natives from other tribes or are they settlers or you know who are these people they're largely white people who were living in sacred stone who are now evicted from sacred stone because of this land dispute and they've moved on to this unleased tribal land that the bia issued trespassing notices and they have until this sunday whatever day that is for those trespassing notices to take effect and they have to prove that they have a lease to the land. And if they don't, then the BIA can remove them. I'm curious what the word is coming out from, from LaDonna, specifically around Sacred Stone. I interviewed LaDonna yesterday at an event in Fort Yates. And she's defiant. She's not going anywhere. And she feels like, you know, this challenge that's been posed against her is meant to be 
in her space and she's she's standing strong. That's always been her message is to stand and to continue to stand. And that's what LaDonna is going or has vowed to do. And she's very protective of the people that have stayed on her, what is believed to have been her property. And she has not shown no sign of backing down. You came, we gave, welcomed you into the land you lie. And still, butcher those who sleep at night, man, your slave. At the height of the media attention at Standing Rock, the focus was always on two things the violent confrontations between water protectors and police, and the concept of protecting the water, summarized in the words, mini wichoni, water is life. One can discuss the particular issues surrounding the Dakota Access Pipeline, while also saying that this movement isn't about a pipeline at all. Rather, it is yet another example of sovereignty being systematically stripped away from indigenous peoples. Take the original route of the pipeline. It was proposed to cross the Missouri River north of Bismarck And according to the Bismarck Tribune, documents show it was rejected because of its potential threat to Bismarck's water supply. According to the U.S. Census, Bismarck is 92.4% white. Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Have you seen the route of the pipeline? You look at the beginning of it in North Dakota. It begins in Stanley, North Dakota. And in Stanley, North Dakota... That pipeline is east of the river. So my question is, why does it run west and it drops south and it crosses the Missouri River west of Williston, North Dakota, and it comes down in a southeasterly direction and it's going to cross the Missouri River again? Why didn't Dakota Access go from Stanley straight towards Illinois, completely bypassing the Missouri River. It just doesn't make sense. I got elected in December of 2014, and in September of 2015 was the first, uh, you know, that was brought to my attention. And at that time, the Great Plains Tribal Chairman Association, which consists of tribes in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska, we took action to oppose the pipeline. As the chairman of the Shannon River Sioux Tribe, I could honestly say that we were nowhere officially notified by the Corps of Engineers that this was going to happen. But that's how the federal government likes to work. Instead of dealing with uh, 15 two tribes, they want to deal with one. The Corps of Engineers has a federal obligation to uh, consult and also interface with all tribes living along the river. And that has not happened. I feel purposely excluded. That's the only water source. You know, we've, uh, growing up, you know, um, I grew up where we had artesian wells. Uh, That had the federal government come in and cap them wells. We no longer have them. We got uh, fresh drinking water from uh, dams. Them are all dried up, and uh, that's our only uh, resource. Historically, uh, on the Shine River Sioux Tribe, uh, two of the bands that are on our reservation have always been along the Missouri River, uh, especially the Minikoju band. 
which translates to uh, planning along the, the water. So we've always relied on the river, and that is uh, pretty much our lifeline. No, uh, our economy is, is uh, heavily dependent on agriculture. So not only uh, we need that fresh, clean water for human consumption, but also for our livestock and also our crops. So we did do irrigation. So um, if that pipeline was ever to be uh, built and never break, you know, our whole way of life could be completely destroyed. that a pipeline was rerouted from a largely white community because of fears of water contamination. Why do the lives and livelihoods of the natives that live along the Missouri River matter less than those of the white people in Bismarck? It's a fair question. To add to this conversation, let's circle back to the concept of divide and conquer and how the media plays a part. Let's hear from Jade again. The other way I see divide and conquer play out and and used against the against the people against native people this media group did this project called the rock report they released this video that went viral and it was it was of dave archambault giving these comments about the movement and you know his opinions on water is life and they took his comments totally out of context and they villainized him it was is really sad to see and then showed it to people other people on the ground and they did this thing where it was like look at these terrible things that dave is saying what do you have to say about it um it was sabotage it really undermined the work that i personally had been doing for months and months i think that to understand indian country or at least to come in and and cover stories. Sure, you're going to be able to come in and, and parachute in and grab the sound bites, and that's fine. But I think that also, if you really want to get at the heart of the story, it requires sitting back and observing, and maybe not always getting the interview, and maybe just waiting. For instance, right now, tensions are so high here on the reservation, on all sides. And it's really difficult to find time, say for instance, to interview the chairman who has really been, I think, slighted in many ways from a lot of outside media who came in and he's so trustworthy that he believed a lot of these kind of independent media sources as being allies. And instead what it's done is generated this kind of... um, social media uh, dialogue, as we've seen on Facebook and in the comment sections on YouTube or wherever. And I think that to understand those dynamics, how and why these narratives are shaped before just jumping in and going in and grabbing these interviews and splicing them up, I mean, there's real, re- there's real uh, impact in doing that, and we've seen that with some of these um, outside media sources who perhaps may not understand the kind of impact that they will have, where the truth wasn't 
really represented as well as it should have been. The North Dakota media has been trying to create false narratives um, ever since this began. North Dakota uh, media is still creating false stories and narratives about what's going on at camp. The most recent was with the whole cleanup situation, North Dakota governor um, saying that people have been slow about it and and that no one's taking initiative. And um, I think there was even one report that said that there might be bodies in the garbage. And so just throwing out these crazy accusations that no one's died there. Making a dent in the immense amount of debris being hauled out of the Ochekti Sakoan protest camp is being hindered by the weather. In a month, all this trash could become toxic. Each load that's stumped is inspected by the Morton County Sheriff's Department. We are looking for, uh, as I said, anything illegal, um, anything that might be used to um, I guess harm our officers during a protest. As bad as it sounds, we're looking for people that may have died and could be wrapped up in, you know, a canvas or a tarp or a tent. You know, there's no bodies in the garbage. Like, that's just, that's just bogus. That's just totally a lie. Yet, yet they, they're doing it. Um, so that those are the kind of narratives that we have to fight back and we have to counter constantly. There were times throughout the movement that rumors surfaced across social media, and with hashtag NoDapple trending on Twitter for lengths of time, it's reasonable to ascertain that any one person heard about the Dakota Access Pipeline more than once in the last six months. However, as Jade mentions, this is not the first time Indigenous peoples had an encampment and stood against extractive industries. We had finally broke this plastic seal on the mainstream media, where we were not just in our own echo chambers of progressive media. You know, we were also being featured in, in mainstream news. That was a big deal, because that is just not normal for indigenous peoples because this is not the first time that indigenous peoples have have had an encampment and have tried to stop some sort of fossil fuel project there's been oak flat there's been in canada the first nations people in new brunswick had a movement where they stopped fracking projects this is something that's happened before not on this scale not on this um not with these kinds of numbers and not with the kind of like attention that Standing Rock has grabbed. But, you know, this is something we do all, all the time and have been doing. There is something very strategic about leaving us out of the mainstream narrative. And it's a part of colonization. It's a part of the, the genocide of our, of our people that, that, that's, you know, ignoring our fights, ignoring our existence. We're still here is a part of that pattern. What I haven't called out, which is the elephant in the room when we're having these kinds of conversations is, is, is it's, it's a part of white supremacy. It's a part of that white supremacist agenda to ignore and totally erase that there are other narratives, that there are other people to recognize. Which is why it's so important to talk about representation, 
Standing Rock was an example of the need for Indigenous voices and content creators. It's why journalists like Jenny Monet embedded herself there and devoted her time to telling these narratives. I think for the very uh, reason why, how we were able to deep dive in such a complex issue. As an Indigenous person, we don't need to have the bandwidth to understand that land disputes go back 150 years. We've just kind of inherited that knowledge by just living and being on our, in our tribal communities and understanding how that plays out in our real lives. I have personal stories of, you know, land allotment struggles with my own family and in my home community of the Pueblo of Laguna. And it's that kind of inherent understanding that where I think um, outside media from whatever size of, of operation, I think it, it takes a little bit of bandwidth. And I think that there are many news organizations out there who are perhaps focused on a bit more fast-paced news cycle or have invested maybe some of their more deeply rich researched stories in other areas than uh, indigenous peoples and, and their issues. When we're not able to speak for ourselves and when uh, like when the reporting is done about us and not by us and from the experience, what ends up happening too is this, I guess you could call it this like fetishizing of of the native person and our struggle and and so then it's like oh well you know you know those those poor native folks we just become the victim so what i what i loved about seeing um indigenous people tell their story and collaborate with the in, the native people on the ground um, to create their own media and their own stories and narratives was that we weren't looked at as the victim. We were looked at as the protector, as the warrior, as the strong, resilient people that we are and we know we are. Um, we survived genocide. That's huge. That's, that's a lot of, you know, um, that's a part of our identity and a, a part of you know how we how we walk in this world, carrying on that 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 resilience and that strength. I've I've been at this for a long time in terms of covering indigenous issues as a native person, and you know I mean it's you're just automatically assumed that you're going to take you know this kind of advocacy slant, and it's just the one has to be vigilant about whether or not you want the work to be taken credible as well. And there there are places for that, and that is that has been represented at Standing Rock in a really beautiful, powerful way. Um, indigenous Rising yeah. and all of these other kind of, um, you know, advocacy films that came and swelled the movement. I mean, they had a purpose there. I think they're great. That's not what I do, but... I think they're great, and I think that that's what I mean when I'm. I have to maybe perhaps overcompensate my role is to really just say that I that's that's happening over in that part of media in the media sphere, and I'm over here. On February first of this year, Jenny joined a growing number of journalists arrested at Standing Rock as she was gathering interviews and taking photographs of campers who had established a new camp on historic treaty land. I think that uh, there have been about eight journalists of different stripes 
uh, that have been arrested over the course of the movement here at Standing Rock. Many of them are some of the um, hardest working people, I think, that have been on the ground with Unicorn Riot. And, you know, I think what this issue of arresting journalists here in North Dakota represents are a lot of different uh, interesting points. There are commonalities. We're independent. We write for these independent publications. We, you know, our audiences that that we produce things for are hungry for this kind of content. And I think that, you know, in the eyes of maybe, you know, Morton County, they, you know, they're, they're a small market. And so big legacy media matters and small independent media is just kind of unheard of, I think. So um, I think that maybe that makes us easy targets. I don't know. I... I feel like I've formed um, really strong relationships with uh, all sides here in North Dakota. I would just say that, you know, I've always been aware of the arrests that have been made on journalists here in the movement. And I would, I think, I think in large part, um, Amy Goodman stands as a strong example of perhaps how North Dakota sees um, these journalists that are getting arrested, that, uh, you know, that their their role as journalists have somehow been downgraded to activism or advocacy um, just for the kind of stance that they take um, that is perhaps favorable to the movement, to the water protectors, and less, and less so for the pipeline. <laughs> and doing the research has been that what Indigenous peoples have endured factors into their daily lives. Furthermore, whether it be a fossil fuel project or the media, colonialism continues to have a hefty impact on both silencing the voices of our nation's first people and forcing them to bear the brunt of our poor environmental choices firsthand. So how to move forward? Both Jade and Jenny weigh in. You know, as far as, you know, carrying on this momentum that began at Standing Rock, that Standing Rock was a catalyst for what I can do as a, as a media maker, as a journalist, whatever, whatever the word is, I, I wear many hats, is to go to the places where there are fights happening um, right now and, and show that there are other places where all the thousands of people who went to Standing Rock can can go to now and can stand with those communities. You don't need to drive to North Dakota to show your solidarity. If you're in Colorado, go to Chaco Canyon. If you're in Texas, go to Two Rivers Camp in Big Bend. Um, if you're on the West Coast, there's pipelines in Oregon. Uh, forests are being cut down in Alaska. There's issues everywhere. And People can can show their solidarity in in all these places. So for me as a media maker is to, you know, create content that can show people that 
these other resistances, these other fights are are happening and they can go there and they should go there, especially if they were at Standing Rock at some point or another and said they, they stood with indigenous peoples. What I think we're seeing with what's happening with Standing Rock is we're seeing or what I envision is that we take Standing Rock as a, as a, you know, like you said, as a catalyst, as something that awoken us. So now we're gonna, we're gonna carry that on, and we're gonna fight for the bigger issue because we can't do much now with with Standing Rock and with the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's it's all held up in legal battles, and with the with the cabinet that and the administration that's in place now, it's going to be really challenging. So what we can do is organize in our communities. Tell your city council to divest. Seattle just did that. And we can we can continue with those kinds of actions and, and yeah, support indigenous media makers who are trying to uphold the truth and to, to share indigenous narratives. Also, you know, for me as a as a media maker, content maker, I I plan to go into spaces that we're not typically represented in. In March, I'll be at South by Southwest, and um, I've I've worked with some of the program directors there to design a, a program around lessons learned about Standing Rock, um, especially in regards to media. And so, going into space spaces where we're not seen normally and um, disrupting the the status quo and disrupting the the patterns of of uh, not having an indigenous presence and and having one and changing that I just think that standing rock was just a really beautiful opportunity for the world to take a minute and you know, expend the bandwidth to wrap their head around what tribal sovereignty is, how it how it fits into everybody's daily lives when we're talking about the protection of water and land and resources, but also just the you know the racial just injustices that exist in in communities every day and that right to consultation and to be heard and to have a seat at the table not just for tribes but you know for for all people who have um been dealt with with all kinds of oppression and so I am hopeful that the spirit of Standing Rock um still kind of permeates all all around us despite these kind of challenging times that we're in and that we remember that of the strength that people power had here on this reservation and I think that that's that's always going to be what um, I hope to regardless of the narrative here happening on the ground right now but to bring that back because it was real and I think everybody felt that at one time that was here I would like to continue reporting on this story. My arrest has been a huge distraction. I think for reasons that you haven't seen a lot of coverage about maybe the the land dispute on Sacred Stone is because there aren't a lot of journalists out here, and that was probably a story that I should have been covering instead of writing about my arrest, which is equally as important. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to kind of picking up where 
things, I feel like this week is just kind of bringing me back into the fold of uh, where things are. And unfortunately, it's coming at a really um, tumultuous time. The camps are closing. The Army Corps is hours away of um, moving in on this historic, historic land. And I mean that both not only because it's treaty territory, but because uh, it's it was this birthplace of the seven council fires for, you know, the first time in how many generations. And so, you know, I don't think everybody's gotten, I don't think everyone's let it sink in that, that in a matter of days, that space is going to be completely raised and, you know, that image that everybody had back in October and November and December of, of those encampments is, is now in something all in our memories. And I know that in just speaking with it to a few people here on the reservation, it brings tears to people's eyes because it was a beautiful space. And um, this is the week that we will see that come to an end. Underreported is an independent news documentary podcast produced by myself, Corey Feener. Special thanks to Jade Begay and Indigenous Rising Media, Cameron Frazier of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, and Jenny Monet, independent journalist. Our theme song is by Dave Robertson. Other music generously donated by Stephen Laverne and Westgate. Have a look at our website for links and resources discussed in this episode, as well as photos from my time at Standing Rock. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and share the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>